This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We all think the journey is going to be fairly linear and that we can tell how long it will take. And that's just, that's just never true. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Leslie Butowitz is a three-time Agatha Award winner and the best-selling author of The Spice Shop Mysteries, set in Seattle, and The Food Lover's Village Mysteries, set in Northwest Montana, where she lives. As Alicia Beckman, she writes Moody Suspense. Leslie is a Mystery Writers of America board member and a past president of Sisters in Crime. So please welcome Leslie to the show. Hello. Hello, Sarah. It's nice to connect with you and your listeners. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. We're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning of your writing journey. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? This will sound like a joke, but it's absolutely true. I started writing at four on my father's desk. Quite literally, I did not yet understand the concept of paper. Fortunately, my parents were very understanding and more amused than anything else, and they kept me well supplied as a kid. I was always interested in writing, but I didn't think that it was something you could actually do. I didn't know any authors, even though I was a teenage bookseller. Not very many published authors came on tour in those days, and certainly they didn't come to Billings, Montana. I was also an English major in college at Seattle University, but again, it wasn't something I thought you could do. The only author I ever knew was one memoirist, a cowboy writer, who came to the bookstore in Billings, and a woman who wrote a book that I had as a small child called Willie Weep the Chimney Sweep, and I still have that. So not thinking that it was a viable career option, naturally I went to law school. I was a good writer and good researcher, and that that became my niche. I got serious about writing during a crisis in my early 30s, mid-30s. And I would say that that's not uncommon for someone who's got an artistic impulse to really discover that that creative urge or spirit is a critical part of our identity and can't be denied. Often it's our path to healing. It's probably no coincidence that most of my novels deal with a woman's search for identity in some form. It's a critical part of a woman's journey, and it is a critical part of what led me to take writing seriously. So can you tell me a little bit more about the moment that you knew that you wanted to be a published author? I honestly can't remember having that light bulb moment, but I know that by the time I settled in to seriously write the mystery that I began on the library table in my law firm where I worked, seeking publication was a given. And that might have been because I had worked in a bookstore. But of course, at that point, I didn't know any other writers. And I was living in a small town on an Indian reservation in western Montana. I should say that I am not a tribal member, but that is where I lived and practiced at the time. I had no idea it was not going to be easy. And honestly, I'm glad I didn't know. 
So once you decided that you did want to pursue publication, how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to go about it, how to query, everything like that? So as I said, I I lived in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I still do, uh, a different one though. And the hard part, and this was in the, the mid-90s, 1996 or so, was at that point getting information. Now the problem is curating the information because we have too much of it coming at us. Mm-hmm. But what really was the trigger for me was a friend saw an article in the newspaper from another town about Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers of America. And so I thought that those would be good ways to start learning. I joined. I saw the call for what became the Sisters in Crime chapter, The Guppies. It was for new and unpublished writers. And this was in the days before email and internet. So we exchanged information by by mail, literally by mail, and then occasionally by phone calls. And that was how I found out about the query process, learned about agents. I also learned a lot about craft that way because we would send each other these fat envelopes of information that we would photocopy about the process. And eventually I, I got hold of a book, Sisters in Crime, published called Shameless Promotion for Brazen Hussies. And Sink has Sink is the nickname for Sisters in Crime, which I later uh, served as president of. Sink has updated that book several times, and it remains an, an important outlet. Not the book, but Sisters in Crime. That was a really big and important way that I started learning. Eventually, when I moved to a, another town, the valley where I live now, I learned about a local writers group. It's a multi-genre group. There are a few mystery writers in it and people who write all kinds of other things. And that was a really important source for me. And that is probably my number one recommendation for a beginning writer. And if there is is one, great. If there isn't, see if you can join a national organization that may or may not have a chapter in your community. Certainly, neither Sisters in Crime or Mystery Writers of America has an in-person chapter in Montana. We just don't have enough people. But you can learn an awful lot, especially now that we have so many other ways to communicate. The miracle of email, for example. And uh, Zoom has actually kind of been a a blessing the last year and a half, even though sometimes it it can be a curse. But uh, both remote and in-person connections are are really important. And for mystery writers, honestly, Sisters in Crime is, is just the tops. Of course, I'm contractually obliged to say that as a former president, but I would have anyway. (laughs) I've had several SYNC members here. One of my best writing friends is a member of SYNC. And I put together a virtual event newsletter every week. And SYNC has at least monthly free writing workshops for both members and non-members, which is really great. Yes. Many of the chapters have have, uh, free online seminars as well. Those SYNC webinars are, as you said, available free to non-members. And then members can uh, watch them in their archives. And they're certainly not limited to mystery writing. Yeah, I actually met. So my podcast is part of the Writer's Bone podcast network. And I originally met the person who runs that podcast network through a sync webinar that they did on podcasting for writers. So (laughs) that's funny. Fabulous. 
But you are definitely right that the problem these days is not so much finding information as figuring out which information you should trust and listen to, for sure. And that's one of the reasons why a group, whether it's online or in person, is so helpful, because you can get information from people you trust, run something by other people, and kind of uh, crowdsource it. Yeah, for sure. So then what happened? Can you break down for us your journey from then to signing your first book contract? It was interesting to listen to a few episodes of your show and discover that one of the recurrent themes is we all think the journey is going to be fairly linear and that we can tell how long it will take. And that's just that's just never true. It will take you a lot of places you expect. It may not take you where you expect right away. And, and honestly, some of those detours turn out to be a really good thing. This story starts a long time ago. I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't want to bore anybody. But I will say that I started writing seriously more than 25 years ago. And at that point, I was not yet focused on fiction. I was looking at magazine writing and fiction just seemed like it was too daunting because I thought you had to know the end before you started. The funny thing is that now, 12 novels in, I usually do have uh, the ending in mind, but now I have experience and some understanding of craft. So I um, have developed my own planning process. But back in those days, fiction was just too daunting. I was teaching in the law school in Missoula and doing a lot of driving and listening to books on tape, and they were literally on tape back then, and a lot of them were mystery. Partly I was interested, and partly that's what the collection had. It was a natural fit for a lawyer, and I loved it since I first met the Happy Hollisters as a young reader. And I will credit those tapes to choosing mystery because, as I said, that's who I was listening to, but they were really important, and I want to mention that specifically. I was reading, listening to Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky, who is actually now a personal friend, which is pretty great, and Barbara Ellis, and Ellis Peters, author of The Brother Cadfile Mysteries, and most importantly, Tony Hillerman. And Hillerman was important to me because he was not setting his books in sexy places that people knew. They weren't in Los Angeles or Santa Barbara or New York. He was setting his stories in the Four Corners area where the Navajo and Hopi reservations meet. And for me, as a Montanan, that was really important. That was really eye-opening that you could set a story in a landscape that was different from what most people knew and make that landscape and make those differences part of the story. And that is something that is really, really key to me. I started writing that first book on the law firm library table. It was a few years, a couple of years before I actually was able to finish it and started the agent search, started the second book. And that's another really important piece of advice. Start that second book right away. I published a short story with that main character. And I remember that even though I wasn't getting much agent interest and eventually did get an agent, but we didn't sell the series, I remember a, a different agent telling me, don't give up on that protagonist. She's catching readers' attention. She's catching agents and editors' attention even though they are ultimately saying no. And what that meant to me was that I hadn't learned how to write well enough yet, but that I did have a grasp of what made a character. So I wrote three with that protagonist, third book got an agent, lots of interest, ultimately it didn't sell. 
contradictory letters on the same day, literally in the same envelope. Again, as I said, this was pre-email. One editor, editor saying, love the character, plot predictable. The other editor saying, great plot, not sure this character can carry a series. Those things are discouraging, but they're also encouraging at the same time, because as a, a mentor said uh, later, it means you're in the game and it's all a matter of taste. About that time, I took a week-long seminar in person, a workshop from the amazing mystery writer, Elizabeth George. It was at the Book Passage Bookstore in Northern California. Her series and her teaching intrigued me about writing Shifting Point of View. So, so I wrote another book, uh, starting another series. But again, that didn't sell. And I'll confess that for a time, I stopped writing. I thought I was still writing. I was doing research and playing with ideas, but I really wasn't doing anything that was getting words on the page. And honestly, as much as I loved the story that I had in mind then, I'm not sure that I ever will write that novel. But a lot of the research has worked its way into, into other stories. What happened next was I was part of a couple of in-person writers groups and a couple of online writers groups. And because I'm a lawyer, other writers started asking me questions about the law. Can this, this character inherit from this character? My character needs to get a search warrant. How do they do that? Who is Miranda and why are we always warning her? So I started writing columns for newsletters, for uh, a chapter of Mystery Writers of America and for Sisters in Crime National. And I knew a writer, Doug Lyle, who is a medical doctor, who had written a book about medical and forensics questions for writers. So I put together a proposal, which his agent accepted, on doing a similar book for writers about the law. And we called it Books, Crooks, and Counselors, How to Write Accurately About Criminal Law and Courtroom Procedure. Unfortunately, it didn't sell. So that kind of derailed me a bit. But ultimately, a couple of years later, I decided I was tired of all these projects in the drawer and I was going to pull them out and sell something, or at least try. Wasn't agented at that point. But I saw an article in a writing magazine by a psychologist who had a forthcoming book, The Writer's Guide to Psychology, from Quill Driver Press. I would not have queried Quill Driver if I hadn't seen that article, or if I had known that my former agent had in fact submitted it there and been turned down. It turned out that she had not, by accident, she had not sent me that letter, and I didn't know that I'd been turned down. And I'm really glad I did. It turned out the company had been sold. There was a new editor publisher. He had a different vision. And this turns out to be a theme for me. I took the conventional road, but the road turned and I had to find another way. And that's the biggest lesson for me in this writer's journey and frankly, in, in my entire life. I still believe in knowing and understanding that conventional route. If you don't follow it, do it for a reason, but know the pathways before you deviate from them. Think about all your options. And I realized in the process of writing that book that my passion for helping other writers was, was really strong, but I wasn't through telling my own stories. And that leads me to the point where I finally can say, yes, I got published. I really enjoy the cozy mystery, which is the light side. Think Agatha Christie with recipes or uh, Jessica Fletcher and Murder, She Wrote. No graphic sex or violence, lots of graphic food. They don't all have food. Some of them have knitting. 
at the time, and this was 2011, right at the time that books, Crooks and Counselors came out, publishers were buying cozy mysteries on proposal. And in fact, they still are, although not as many as in those days. But an unpublished writer could break in that way. That really was the the key. I put together a proposal, sent it to some friends from my guppies group who referred me to their agent who turned me down. And at that very same time, in fact, it was the very day that the agent turned me down. One of my guppy friends who was and still is with that agent dropped me a line and said, what's happening? And I told her, "Mm, well, it was me. And she said, I really like that proposal. I think my editor would really like it. And she then gave it to her editor, Faith Black Ross, at uh, who was then at Berkeley Prime Crime and is now at Crooked Lane. Faith bought it, and that became the Food Lovers Village Mysteries. The first three books were, were published by Berkeley. And during that time, Faith also bought my Spice Shot Mysteries set in Seattle. So I had two three-book contracts. It was heaven. It was a lovely experience working with Berkeley and Faith. I felt like a real author on my way. In 2013, in fact, Death El Dente, the first Food Lovers Village mystery, won the Agatha for Best First Novel. But here we go back to that theme about twists and turns in the road and the unexpected and needing to find a way. In 2015-16, Penguin and Random House merged. The model that the joined company followed de-emphasized mass market paperback originals, which is what most cozies are. So I did not get additional contracts, even though the sales were fairly good. It was just a business decision. And in that way, I'm glad for my legal background because I do understand those business decisions. That didn't mean it didn't hurt like holy heck, though. But the answer was always to find another way. Midnight Inc. picked up the Food Lovers Village series. There was a two-year gap. They put out two books. I felt the series had ended, and so I signed a contract with them, with Midnight Inc., for a new series in the fall of 2018, literally inches from the end of finishing the first draft. The parent company announced the closure of Midnight Inc. The book stayed available for a couple of years, but then last year, summer of 2020, uh, the rights were returned. And so I found another way. I wanted those two books to to still be available because readers still enjoyed them. And the first three, which had come out from Penguin, were still available. So Beyond the Page, which is a hybrid publisher, reissued the first, Trouble at the Jam Fest, and they will reissue As the Christmas Cookie Crumbles on November 9th. What happened to that other series, the Spice Shop series? That landed at 7th Street. Like Midnight Inc., it was a trade publisher, mid-sized, highly regarded. And like Midnight Inc., it went through a change. Uh, shortly after I turned in the first manuscript, that same time in in the fall of 2018, uh, the imprint sold. And this is a common story for authors, no matter what the size of the publisher. It's a tough business. Now, I should say 7th Street continues, and I'm, I am still with them. But this is what I want to emphasize, that this is a, a tough business. The new owner struggled a little bit to to get its footing. Things seem to be fine now. But guess what happened right as the book was coming out? Well, you know what happened. The pandemic hit. The release got delayed and we didn't know how how to launch a book. We all had to learn that. Just keep on working to find a way. And that's that is what I learned. And that's what's gotten me to the point of having one nonfiction book, 12 novels a short story collection, 
and a couple more in the pipeline. Okay, so as I understand it, you don't have some of those first query letters because you were snail mail querying, but you do have a query letter to share with our listeners because they love hearing them. So do you want to go ahead and read that? I will do that. And I will preface this by saying this is for the nonfiction book and it was not to an agent, but to an editor. And so it um, it's 12 years old, but it worked. Uh, it is a business letter because, of course, a query is a business letter. For a novel, I might be a little jokier. I might be a little looser and freer, but I was selling a nonfiction proposal for uh, a book about the law. So if I, I sound like a lawyer, well, guilty as charged. Dear Mr. Sorsky, enclosed is my nonfiction proposal, Books, Crooks, and Counselors, an Attorney's Guide to Writing Law in Fiction. And we did change that title a little bit in the publication process. I hope you will find it an intriguing and useful addition to your books for writers. A legal thread often runs through the fictional world. Whether legal issues are central to the plot or part of the backstory, Writers want to get the facts right. As a lawyer who also writes fiction, I have consulted with many writers over the last few years to provide them with research on a legal issue, find a case with similar facts, or explain how a trial or interrogation might unfold. Some writer clients have asked me to review scenes and chapters for accuracy and authenticity. I've also written numerous columns and answered questions on my website and in newsletters for writing, writers groups, including Sisters in Crime. Columns and questions cover a wide range of topics, how to get a search warrant, what habeas corpus is, may a person be convicted of homicide if a body is never found, can children testify at trial, and more. My goal is to help writers use the legal issues in their stories to strengthen their plots, settings, and characters, and to better incorporate the law into their fiction. I'd like to share my expertise with more writers. My book proposal includes a table of contents, sample chapters, and endorsements from several novelists and nonfiction writers, including Doug Lyle and Lee Laughlin, authors of popular books for writers on using medicine and police work in their fiction. It also includes market information and marketing ideas. And then the final paragraph is my memberships and publishing credits, uh, which at the time were short stories and a little bit more about my my legal career. I just have one question. What is habeas corpus? <laughs> now, since I am partially retired from the law, I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that one and say I would have to pull the book off the shelf <laughs> to give it an exact definition. But it basically translates as give me the body. And it's a procedure used when someone wants to get out of jail, for example. And that's the most common jail or prison. And the two are different. And that's one of the distinctions discussed in the book. It is a procedure commonly used when someone wants to challenge a conviction many years after they were were challenged or they were convicted and their time for appeals is expired it may be based on a change in the law for example or new evidence that kind of thing interesting all right you talked about it a little bit but how has your experience been since signing that first contract were you talked about twists and turns, but if you want to add anything, were there any surprises along the way? Honestly, I thought it would be a linear process. You find a publisher and you keep going. The authors I was reading, Tony Hillerman, Sue Grafton, Judy Jantz, they all had the same publishers. And I thought that that's what happened. But publishing is a, a business like any other, and it has been pressured in many ways in the last few years. We've had conglomeration and loss of houses that were freestanding publishers that are now 
either completely gone or or are divisions of larger publishers. But on the flip side, we've had the emergence of newer houses like 7th Street and Crooked Lane. And so there are still plenty of opportunities. We also now have a viable self-publishing or independent publishing option, which was certainly not an option when I first got started. So I'll tie this back to what I said earlier about the importance of, of writers groups and the information you can learn in them, because that's the way you find out what these options are and learn to weigh them for yourself so that when the road forks, you have a clue which direction you want to go. It is time for author DNA, our quick round. It's just kind of classifications that we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Yes, it depends on the, the book. Um, for a short story, I'm a pantser. For a book, I'm typically a planner. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? You might find this hard to believe after listening to me, but I actually tend to turn in manuscripts that are right on the word count. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Morning. Whenever you start a new story, do you tend to start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Usually the concept, but I just finished a short story where I didn't have a concept until five pages in. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Yes. Coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Whenever you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Silence. The cat accepted. When it comes to writing the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or get it right kind of person? Get it down. What tools or software do you use to draft? I am so old school. I write in WordPerfect. It's just because for so many years I was writing and practicing law at the same time and the law field didn't move to Word. They stuck with WordPerfect for a really long time and my brain just couldn't handle both. So I stuck with WordPerfect and I still use it and then I just convert to Word when I need to. Anything else special, Scrivener, any of those things? Nope. Notebooks and pens and old-fashioned word processing. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I like them both, but probably revision. Drafting is harder. Revision is a lot more fun. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Sequential, except in those short stories. Final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? So it's obvious that I cannot answer a simple yes or no question. Yes or no, I'm an ambivert. Uh, some of each, especially when it comes to talking about books and writing. I can turn it on and then, you know, at the end of a convention, I appreciate the long plane ride home to recombobulate after all that peopling. The show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We already did your query, but now we're going to talk about the second cue. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? So when you're new, you think that that first story idea you have, and sorry, I'm a mystery writer, you think it's killer and you might hang on to it too long, even when experience is showing you that maybe this is your practice novel and not the one that will sell. There are always going to be more stories. You just don't always know that at first, but creativity generates more creativity. Ideas and practice generate more ideas. For a long time, I didn't think I was a very creative person because I don't color my hair purple or drive a quirky car or live in some funky house half off the grid. I look pretty normal. I talk pretty normal. Turns out normal is a great disguise. And now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of fun or interesting or different or unique? When I first started writing, I had three dogs and a cat. 
And I could only write on Fridays because that was the only time I had. And late on the afternoon on Friday, I would reach out and pull the chain on the desk lamp. And that would be the last thing I would do at the end of the writing session. And my three dogs quickly learned that that was the end of the session and they would pop up and we would run outside and run around for a while. I used to have a cat, as I said, and I would, before we got the cat, I would light a candle on my desk until we got a cat who liked to walk across the desk and that didn't mix. So no more candles. And the last thing I'll mention is my honey and I joke about writing world. And fortunately, I started writing before we got together. So it's always been part of our relationship that at times I'm just not here, even though I might look like I am. And anything you say to me is fair game. (laughs) When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, what kept you going? And why did you stick to it? I mentioned earlier that there were a few years where when I look back at it now, I realized I wasn't really writing. I was definitely floundering. I was using my legal knowledge and experience in writing fiction, even though it hadn't sold, to help other people. And using that to write books, Crooks and Counselors, really saved me as a writer, because it it made me realize I did have something to offer. I did have a niche to fill and I wasn't done writing my own stories. And so gradually through that experience and the help of, of my very supportive honey, I learned that this is what I was meant to do. And, and it is my, my purpose in life. There's a quote from Joseph Campbell that I particularly like. He says, never underestimate the value to the universe of a fully realized life. Even if you don't get your books published, and if if you keep going and, and keep trying to find a way, you, you can do that. But even if you don't, are you realizing your potential? Are you fulfilling the purpose that you've got on this earth? And, and that is, is ultimately, I think, the most important thing any of us can do. Nice. I noticed you looked a different direction for that quote. Do you have that posted at your desk? Yeah, I do. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? Virtually every opportunity I've had started with something I learned in a group, which seems kind of contradictory because writing is such a solo activity, but it really is true. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a former president of Sisters in Crime and a current board member of Mystery Writers of America. It really is true. You may think that with all your juggling in your life, You don't have time for one more thing, like a writer's group, but the truth is you don't have time not to. The right group will shorten your journey and keep you on the path. Now, it might not sound like that hearing the length of my journey and all the twists and turns it took, but I promise you I would not have stayed on this path had I not seen so many other people succeed ahead of me, had I not been given a handout and a chance to move forward, a chance to learn with other people. That's great. And that actually goes right into the next question. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. I usually call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. Who are some of the people and organizations who helped you along the way and how? Honestly, because this journey has has been a long one, uh, there are too many people to name, but I do specifically want to mention Sisters in Crime, as I said, Authors of the Flathead, which is my local writers group. And a couple of teachers, Elizabeth George, who is as amazing a teacher as she is a writer, 
and Don Moss, who is an agent who also writes books about writing and teaches workshops. Those have just been been uh, tremendous for me. There are, are others I could go on and on, but I think that I probably shouldn't. Awesome. Can you tell us about your latest new release? I'd be delighted. <laughs> Bitterroot Lake, written by Alicia Beckman, came out earlier this year from Crooked Lane Books in hardcover and ebook, and the audio is narrated by the amazing Linda Jones. When a young widow returns to her family's Lakeside Montana Lodge in search of solace, murder forces her to reconnect with estranged friends and confront everything she thought she knew about the tragic accident 25 years ago that tore them apart. It's an exploration of love and grief, of women's friendships, the secrets and lies that exist in even close families, and that point when resentment becomes deadly bitterness. We read for emotional experience as much as for entertainment, and I hope my stories give my readers a deeper sense of human experience. With Bitterroot Lake, I also hope that my readers enjoy the trip to a historic mountain lodge on the shores of a Montana lake, which is a hauntingly beautiful place where the past and present intersect. I will say, since I have talked about writing suspense and about cozies, that writing suspense after so many cozies was both great fun and a bit of a challenge. In a cozy, an amateur sleuth investigates a crime that has a deeply personal link to her or to someone she cares about or her to her community, using her knowledge and connections to suss out the true motives, capture the killer, and restore the social fabric of the community. In suspense, on the other hand, the main character faces a threat that could kill her, uh, often from a source that she can't identify, and usually without a lot of help. The mood and the tone are different, and so is the role of the main character. The end game may differ too, but both are as satisfying to write as they are to read. Okay, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with my listeners today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Leslie's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.